And I want to start this message with a profound quote. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. This short statement was uttered by William Carey on May 31st, 1792. At the time he was speaking in his homeland of Britain, a a land who was filled with gospel light, but dim when it came to sharing that light with the countries and the places in the world that have not heard the gospel. And he was burdened that we are called to be sowers of the word of God to the whole world. And so he spoke passionately these words calling for a brand new mission movement, a brand new call to evangelism among his British Christian brethren. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. One year after this sermon was preached, funding was raised and the British Missionary Society had been born and Carey himself got on a boat and set sail for India to reach the unreached in a land that he had never seen, that he had only heard about. So today's message is about sowing the gospel. Today's message is about evangelism. Now, I know that evangelism is kind of a so-so subject. We have kind of so-so feelings about doing evangelism. I know that because I myself find lots of reasons to avoid doing evangelism. But today's text, this powerful parable of Jesus, is here to to shake off that understanding of evangelism, that evangelism is a so-so thing that we do only because of duty or only because uh, the preacher says, let's do it. Jesus wants us to grasp that evangelism, that sowing seed, that reaching the lost is so, so good. There is nothing more rewarding than being part of sowing the gospel into the world and seeing new people know Jesus. And so the title of our sermon is a little bit of a pun, but Jesus invites us not to a so-so life, but to a so-so life, the life that sows the gospel. The main point of of, of this story, the main point of of our sermon today is that if we want to reach the lost, we must sow and sow and sow. That is not me being redundant. That is not me being rhetorical. I sincerely mean we must sow and then sow some more and then sow some more. The sowing never stops. And so as we go through this uh, famous passage of these four soils being sown by the sower, we are going to understand this main point by going through three do's and don'ts of effective gospel sowing. 
Three do's and don'ts of effective gospel sowing. I believe Jesus is laying in front of us what we need to not be trapped in so that we can do what, the, what he is calling us to do. The first, don't prejudge the soil. Do so. Don't prejudge the soil. Do so. So in the first seven verses of this chapter, Jesus just starts teaching a great crowd again, and he teaches in what we call a parable. His parables are, of course, something uh, that we know Jesus uh, famous for, for teaching. But, but what is a parable? Parables are basically uh, a comparison, a story that is making a comparison between something very ordinary to try and point us to understand something that maybe we can't see or we don't understand clearly. And so it is a comparison made through the form of a story. Uh, Duvall and Hayes, two professors, uh, they define a parable as a parable is a story with two levels of meaning where certain details in the story represent something else. And so Jesus gives these stories, these parables, and we're supposed to apply our mind as he says, uh, listen, behold, those who have ears to hear, which is to say, take this story and really consider what is its significance? What does it point to? One other feature that parables often contain, and this one is no difference, is that it has a surprise. It has almost a, a punchline to it. It's like a joke. So you, you hear a joke, and what makes a joke funny, what, you, what makes you laugh, is that the punchline kind of catches you at an angle, and you weren't expecting the joke. Well, Jesus' parables do the same thing. You think it's going this way, and then there is a surprise, and it flips everything upside down and makes you think it all through again. So when we look at this parable, Jesus is laying in front of us a story of a, of a sower. Now, why, why is he telling us this story of a sower and all of these different soils? Well, we have just gone through Mark chapter 2 and Mark chapter 3, and, and what are some of the things that we have seen happening in the story of Jesus' ministry? We've seen the religious leaders listen to Jesus and reject him. We saw Jesus' family in the last passage come to him and say, this is madness. You've got to stop this, right? And we have seen people even in the, in the 12 disciples, we've been told that one named Judas is going to betray him. And then we have seen other people who have responded by dropping everything and following him. But we have seen a mixed response to Jesus' teaching. Jesus has come to proclaim the kingdom. Jesus has come as the Christ, the Lord, and yet not everybody agrees that this is what the Christ, the Lord, or the gospel is. And so Jesus has been uh, preaching and getting a mixed response. Well, now let us look at the parable that he teaches. He says that a sower goes out to sow. And some of the seed that he sows falls along the path, and it's immediately ineffective. Is that not exactly how the scribes and the religious leaders have been responding to his message? And then he says that uh, some of the seed that, he, that is sown falls on, on rocky soil, and it, it looks like they're very excited, but they don't stick with him. 
Well, does that not describe a lot of the crowds that we have seen, which show up at the door for a miracle, but then where are they in between? Right? And then, and then he talks about another seed falling on a soil that, that has uh, also the seed of thorns and weeds. And, and that, that, that one uh, grows up, but the thorns and the weeds grow up and choke out that seed before it bears fruit. Well, does that not describe Judas, who is one of the twelve, but who we already know is eventually going to betray Jesus? And then finally, he speaks of seed that falls on, on good soil and that the seed grows up and it multiplies uh, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Is that not the soil of the disciples? So, so Jesus is telling a parable that reflects his own ministry. And what, what, we, what we have to see is uh, Jesus is explaining his ministry reception to those who have ears to hear so that they do not think that Jesus' ministry is failing, but in fact that Jesus' ministry is accomplishing its purpose because the disciples are receiving the seed. And the disciples who receive the seed are going to be multiplying and faithful. So when, when, when he uses this, this parable, he is explaining the, the task that he is the forerunner of, the task of sowing the seed of the gospel, sowing the seed of the good news. Now there's, there's kind of a question that we might puzzle with as we look at this parable. Why does Jesus throw seed on soil that he knows won't be fruitful? Right? Why does he throw seed on the path? Why does he throw seed on the rocky ground? Why does he throw seed amongst the weedy soil? I mean, isn't, isn't that wasteful? Wouldn't it be better for Jesus just to take the seed to the, to the good soil? Um, it's a fair question. And so what, is, what, are we, what are we supposed to think? Well, here is why we need a little help from people who know how farming was done in the first century. We can't understand the word of God if we only know the 20th century. We must also understand the worldview and the practices of the world that the scriptures were written in. And in the first century, in the area of, of Galilee, the farming practice was you threw the seed and then you tilled the ground. So sowing was done on, on the ground with the understanding that afterwards the ground would be tilled, the ground would be turned over, the ground would be made uh, ready for, for germination. The seed was first and the tilling was second, which is important for us to recognize that the sower cannot know which soil will be good when they're sowing. The, the, the understanding of the soil is not something that the sower can have because what the soil will be like after the farmer comes and tills the land will be entirely different than the land he throws the seed upon. So, this is an important uh, recognition for us as we think about this responsibility of sowing. The receptivity of the soil cannot be known by the, so uh, by the sower. The results... Of the, of the seeds are not the sower's responsibility. Covering the ground with the seed is what is the sower's responsibility. You understand that? 
covering the ground with the seed is the sower's responsibility. And so as we walk in the path of Jesus, we are also called to be sowers. We need to ask ourselves, are we sowing as Jesus taught us to sow? Are we sowing the way the sower, Jesus, sowed? Let me ask, do we prejudge who we will share the gospel with? Do we look at people and already say, that soil is too rocky. That soil is too weedy. That soil is too hard. I'm not going to throw gospel seed there. It would be a waste of my time. But we need to think about who, who do we know? And how do we know how the gospel is going to be received? Let us look at how the gospel has been received in the, 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 the story of Mark so far. Where has the seed been received? Has it been received in the synagogues? Has it been received among the religiously trained? Has it been received by those who have memorized the Torah? Has it been received by those who uh, grew up in the town of Jesus? No. But we might say, that, that's the soil. That's good soil. That's prepared soil. That's the soil that ought to receive the gospel. Who has received the soil? The tax collectors. The traitors of Israel. Those who have sold themselves out to Rome. They have received the seed. Who else has received the seed? The general class of sinners. Sinners. People who are living a life that is out and out identifiably wrong. Sins that stink. Sins that you can see across the room. Those people said, this is good news. Are those the people that we would identify as the good soil? But they are the ones that prove to be the good soil. And so we must always caution ourselves from looking at someone and saying, this is good soil or bad soil. That is doing the job of God. Your job is to throw seed on every soil. Amen? We are here to sow. The reason that, that Renew EPC has said we are going to be a new church here is because we are going to sow seed on the dechurched, on the unchurched, on the nuns. Is that a waste? Are those, are those bad soils? I mean, we could, we could reason that those soils are not receptive, that those were soils that have already heard and rejected. But we cannot think that way. These are the soils that our age and our time have been called to sow. For those who were part of our launch group, we went through the, the book by Mark Sayers called Disappearing Church. And it is worth reminding ourselves of, of what Mark Sayers uh, has said about this particular time of postmodernism, of post-Christianism, of this relativism that we are living in. He, he, he describes the world that we are in as a world that is drowning in freedoms, but thirsting for meaning, a world that is drowning in freedoms but thirsting for meaning. 
And we are well into this drowning in freedom's lifestyle. Everything that you want, everything that you want to believe, everything that you want to have, everything you want to do is available to us. But if you ask the people who are in their 20s and in their 30s, why are you popping so many antidepressant pills? Why aren't you happier when you have everything that you could ever want, when you are richer than any generation has ever been? Why are you so full of anxiety? Why are you so full of depression? Why are you so full of fear and anger? You see, the, the field that we think is so unreceptive, they are being tilled right now by an unquenchable thirst for meaning. A meaning that they cannot find on Facebook, a meaning they cannot find on YouTube, a meaning that they cannot find by swapping their identities here and there. A meaning that can only be given to them by the sower of the gospel. And so we are greatly foolish if we say this is a generation that, that sowing seeds is a waste of time. We are here because God says, sow this field. Sow this field. Sow everywhere. Don't prejudge. Sow. Beloved, how good is it that Jesus did not come to judge? Jesus did not come to tell us your soil is unfruitful. Jesus came to give us his gospel, to give us his life, to give us salvation from whatever death and meaninglessness we suffer from. This is what we communicate when we sow. We communicate the God who did not come to judge this world. He came to save this world. He came to save every single person who receives the gospel. He doesn't judge where you come from. He doesn't judge what you've been through. He doesn't judge what you've done. He says the gospel is for you. We are responsible for sowing, not reaping. Sow everywhere. Why? Because God calls people from everywhere. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Sowing the seed everywhere is reflecting the heart of God. So as we think about the story of, of William Carey, William Carey went to India, not knowing a thing about India, but what sent him to India was the spirit of the sower. One of his biographers said, Carey saw India as his heavenly father's land, a land to be loved and saved. He didn't ask himself, how hard is that soil? He said, did God create the Indians? I am going to go to that land. I am going to show the love of the Father to that land. So we need to sow. 
like we believe every square inch of this earth is God's world. Every square inch of this world is God's. So we sow everywhere. Don't prejudge the soil, do sow. Second, don't become impatient for results. Do sow. These points are going to get a bit repetitive, but don't become impatient for results. Do so. So we, we, we see these first three fields, and then we're told in verses 8 and 9 that other seeds fell among good soil, yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now, now imagine that you're the sower, and you have gone out and you have sowed seed. And the beginning of your sowing is just a barren field. And you have sown and sown and sown on a barren, hostile field that just looks like death. If you you put yourself in this parable, that's how it feels most of the time. The parable appears to tilt toward fruitless soil with three-fourths of the soils not yielding a harvest. I mean, the, the, the first three soils do nothing but disappoint. But the punchline, the twist of this parable is the fourth soil. The fourth soil, which is called the good soil, becomes such a rich soil that when the seed falls on that soil, it so overwhelms in a yield, in a bumper crop, that it makes all of the failed soils small in comparison. That when the seed falls on the good soil, it produces a full field, a bumper crop that is 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. But here's the thing. That crop shows up last. That crop shows up after the hard soil and the birds eat it. That crop shows up after the plants germinate and come up and look like they're going to be fruitful, but then they're in the rocky soil and the, and the sun scorches them. That crop comes up after more uh, of the seed seems to come up and looks healthy and looks good, but then all of a sudden the thorns come up around it and choke it. It is after all three of those events that finally the seed that comes up and grows to maturity and starts to bear fruit appears. It's the end of the season before you even know Is any of this going to bear fruit? So live inside this parable. We watch the soil that fails first. And we watch it for a while. We set our hopes again and again on seed that does not produce. Or on soil, I should say, that does not produce. And we set our hope on another soil and watch it not produce. What I'm saying is, This is hard work on the heart, right? And and in some ways, where we are as a church plant is in that hard part where we feel like we are throwing out seed and throwing out seed and throwing out seed. 
But are we, are we receiving the, the growth that we want to receive? And, and it's, it's okay to be honest and say, you know, I would like to see three more families each week or whatever. That, that is, there is nothing wrong with that feeling. Your pastor feels that way week to week. But that is why this parable is here for us. Each subsequent result seems more discouraging. William Carey went through this. William Carey said, early on in his time in India, I am much dejected. I am in a strange land, alone, no Christian friends, a large family, and nothing to supply their wants. That is a crushing sense of discouragement. And that is where William Carey was. He was sent to India and he saw nothing bearing fruit. Yet, when the time is right, when the time is right, the harvest comes. That's the point of the parable of the sower. When the time is right, the harvest comes. And it flips the math. It flips the math. The sowing did not fail. It just took time and patience to mature. Do you know that William Carey spent seven years in India before he saw a single person put their faith in Jesus? Seven years living in this foreign land, scraping along his existence, just translating the Bible and sharing Jesus, but seven years, not a single convert. And then there was one. One convert at the end of seven years. But after 30 years of of William Carey being in this field, when he was finished, he could count 700 Christians from India. 700 Christians by the end of his ministry, and those Christians, uh, the the Christians in India now number upwards of of 30 million. Now, not all of those come from from Kerry, but but here's something that's kind of interesting. One convert in seven years, and then 700 by the time he is done. That's, That's more than a hundredfold. That is way more than a hundredfold increase that that William Carey saw as he preached the gospel. But that doesn't take the seven years and make him easy. But it does tell us there is a time, there is a period of time where it feels unfruitful and it feels more like work than anything else. But then the one shows up and the one multiplies 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, Right? I mean, do you know what an exciting time we are in for global missions? It is worth knowing that in Christianity, our faith, as we feel, is being destroyed week in and week out, and that we are on the retreat and we are shrinking away, which is not true, but we feel that in our country. And yet, if you take a global perspective, Christianity is booming in the Asian and African and Latin American regions. There are over 100 million Chinese Christians. The Asian continent 
has gone from 22 million Christians in 1900 to over 404 million today. From 22 to 404 million. In Africa, in 1900, there were seven and a half million. Today, there are 544 million. The gospel seed is bearing fruit and it is multiplying. The one who gave us the parable of the sower is telling the truth. You will go through long times that feel fruitless, but the multiplication is happening. If you have ears to hear and eyes to see, it is an amazing thing happening around us. Amen? Amen? Yeah. The crop is seen then by sowers who remain faithful and patient. That's the lesson here. The the great crop is seen by the sowers who remain faithful and patient. Now set your eyes on that joy. Set your eyes on the joy of the crop, the crop which will come. It is a great eternal harvest. And it will feel all the greater and all the more joyous for the hard days that were put into the beginning. What an exciting thing to be part of a great harvest. Commit yourself to that vision of the coming harvest and sow and sow and sow. Finally, number three. Don't fear failure. Do so. There's only one do in this sermon. (laughs) Three don'ts. Don't fear failure. Do so. So we come to a a challenging couple of verses that uh, kind of pull back for Jesus' disciples a perspective of God's providence and God's sovereignty in the work of missions and evangelism. And these words are are challenging. They're very counterintuitive to us. And and the reason that we discover this is because the disciples actually are scratching their head. They're scratching their head about the parable. They're like, what are you talking about? I don't don't understand what you're talking about. You know, I I could have been there to preach for them, but uh, no, (laughs) no. I, I, I have the benefit of a lot of commentaries, right? No, so the, the disciples are, are sitting there and they're scratching their head like, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And they're looking around at all the great crowds and they can just kind of see the, the blank glassy eyes on all these faces. Like, what, what's the guy talking about? What's this, what's this thing, this story about soils and, and sowing seeds? What, what's the point, Jesus, right? And, uh, and so the, the disciples, they come and they say, what? Why are you teaching this way? The, the people aren't getting it. The people are, are, are not getting what you're teaching. You need, to, you need to simplify. You need to find a different uh, method. And so Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, let us look at verse 11, 12 and, uh, 11 and 12. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that... They may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, 
but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus is saying that his teaching is for revealing, but also concealing. It is about giving out the truth, but it is also about hiding the truth. Now, that is a hard saying. That is a hard saying. Jesus here is saying some of his teaching is intentionally so that some people miss it. Some people don't hear the gospel. And the implications of that is some people don't have the opportunity to ask and seek forgiveness. There's a hard edge there. There's no getting around it. This is a hard teaching. It, 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 it seems very, very wrong. It seems very uh, not Jesus to our, our ears. But here is what Jesus is saying. In the parables, Jesus is asserting that his teaching is sovereign. His teaching is sovereign. He controls both the revelation and the reception of God's word. Jesus is not just a great teacher, an effective teacher. He is a teacher who teaches with the sovereign authority of God himself so that he is even in control of our hearing, of our understanding. The teacher Jesus gets the glory not only for proclaiming the truth, but for our understanding that truth. Because in ourselves, we are dull. The reason that Jesus has spent several miracles of healing deaf people is to show us through that physical example a spiritual truth. That just as people are physically deaf and need my hand to open their ears, so we all are spiritually deaf and without my hand touching them will not hear. This is, this is deep water. But Jesus is explaining to his disciples that he is a sovereign teacher who controls both the revelation and the reception of God's word. Now we have to ask ourselves what possibly is the value of God concealing this truth? What possibly is, is the reason that would be any good at all that Jesus would keep some people from hearing the gospel as he is preaching it here and now? Well, there are two reasons that we can find from the gospel of Mark why God conceals his teaching. The first is he conceals his teaching as an act of judgment, as an act of judgment. And here we, we should think about the story of the religious leaders who just came just in the last chapter, who, we didn't talk about this, but who come and say, the reason that Jesus is able to cast out demons is not because he's from God, but because he is powered by Satan. What we did not talk about last week was the fact that these religious leaders don't deny that Jesus has the power to cast out demons. They believe Jesus was an exorcist. They believe Jesus had the power to cast out demons. That was not their argument. Their argument was not, he, he's just tricking you. 
The argument was he's not doing it by God's power. So what they were doing were they were looking at the power of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry, and they were refusing to accept that testimony, to hear what those acts were meant to communicate, and instead said, this is darkness, not light. And so Jesus says to those who are going to hear my word and call it darkness and not light, then I am going to withhold any other revelation from you so that you will receive what you desire, more and more darkness. And so the parables were a way for Jesus to keep those who did not want to believe further confused and further in the dark. But then there is a second reason that Jesus conceals, and that is for our salvation, for our salvation. Go back to the, the story of the Exodus, and you read in, in uh, Moses' interaction with Pharaoh about a dozen times the phrase of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And about half of the time, you're told that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and about half the time, you're told God hardens his heart. And what is the purpose in God participating in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? First, obviously, Pharaoh chose to harden himself just like the religious leaders, and so God gave him over to that hardness. But also, in giving Pharaoh over to that hardness, that was the means that God used to finally save his people. The hardness of Pharaoh's heart was part of God's delivering his people out of slavery. Now, in Jesus' day, the same thing on an even greater level is told to us in Paul's letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Here we read these words. Paul says, here we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul is, is telling us that there was a knowledge that if it had been given to Pilate, and had been given to the, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, and had been given to these religious leaders who were spreading the rumor that Jesus is possessed. If that knowledge had been given to those people so that they truly understood who Jesus was, then they would not have crucified Jesus. Their hearts had to be kept hard. Their light had to be kept in the dark so that when the time came for Jesus to be accused and crucified, these people would do it. It is because of their hardness, it is because of their blindness, that Jesus was crucified and we receive the gospel. We receive salvation. Now, I, I know that this is, has a, a hard teaching in it, but I want you to recognize who actually pays the cost for the hardness of hearing in this parable. 
Who is the one that is putting himself on the cross because these people who he could make understand are kept in the dark? You see, Jesus bore the nails to to keep this truth from some people. This concealing was committing him to the cross. He let his teaching put himself to death so that we could have his salvation. Now, we also need to recognize in this difficult teaching that the hardening of Jesus is not permanent. The hardening that Jesus is talking about here in these parables, there is no reason for us to assume that that was unchangeable. It is clear as you look at the book of Acts that many of the people who were part of crucifying Jesus had since been given the light to come to Jesus. But for a period of time, Jesus, in his sovereign teaching, chose to control his revelation and reception to the people who were going to reject him. Now, when we think about this, this changes how we feel about rejection when we share the gospel, right? Because when we share the gospel, when we sow seed and it's rejected, is it, is it us that's being rejected? No, it's, it's Jesus. And when we are feeling that rejection, who are we able to, to identify with more? Jesus. We, in the rejection of the gospel, get to experience what Jesus went through to give us the gospel. Jesus allowed his heart to be broken. Jesus allowed his wisdom to be misunderstood. Jesus allowed his teaching to be slandered because he loved us to the point of being killed in misunderstanding. And so when we are rejected, when we are slandered, when we are treated with ridicule and mocked, we are only given a taste of what Jesus tasted for us. And so rejection is a way to learn the love of Jesus and to fall in love with him even more. There is a great joy when the gospel is received. But when the gospel is rejected, you can turn to Jesus and say, thank you for going through that rejection to save me. So don't fear failure. Do so. Listen, beloved, the word always accomplishes its purpose. In Isaiah 55, 11, we're told, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Sometimes it is sent to harden and sometimes it is sent to soften. So what? So what? Let us commit ourselves to the same life that Paul committed himself in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Listen, we do not need to fear failure. We need to be faithful in sowing. The increase belongs to him. And he has already told us it is a great 
increase. So William Carey, towards the end of his life, gave us this wisdom. He says, I am not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. I am not afraid of failure. I am afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Can I charge the modern church with those words? Don't be afraid of the failure of sowing. Be afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. And for some of us, that is a call to repentance over some very big things that we have misprioritized. It boils down to this question. Are we sowers? Are we sowers? That is our calling. And what a great calling it is. We are sowers. We are the ones that have been given the seed that saves the world. We have been given the seed that has an eternal harvest Are we sowers? To be sowers, we must let the gospel take root in our own hearts. Is the gospel that has been sown today alive in your hearts? Beloved, Jesus did not come to judge you. He came to give you his life. Receive him. Jesus is patient and faithful. He sees the harvest of your life and he is committed to see it through. And Jesus will not fail you. His sovereign word will not return void in your life. Trust in him and your life will be full and faithful. Amen?